welcome to episode 78 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 9th of December 2019. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hello. Graham. Hello. And Will. Good evening. So here we are, mere days before the dreadful, dreadful election that will ruin this country for good. Again. Again. So we'll be talking about my new Chromebook and Chrome OS and all the things you can do with that a little bit later, but let's start with some news. And the first one is Ubuntu Pro, which is a new image for AWS, which is very easy to deploy and very easy to pay for through your AWS account. And it kind of rolls in all of the Ubuntu Advantage stuff, like the kernel live patch and stuff. This is uh, Canonical getting pretty serious, eh? My job is in no way, um, you know, to speak for um, things like this, and I don't have any inside knowledge of it at all. Um, But I think it's a great thing in that Ubuntu is widely used um, in the cloud, hugely so um, on AWS. And it's got to be a good way of um, for Canonical to monetize people using it while providing like 10 years of support and all that kind of stuff. If this is your thing, I think. And also maybe a change in direction for Canonical or in, in its attempts to monetize the operating system. And I kind of expected, I don't know, I'm glad there wasn't more pushback against this because, you know, companies need to do things like this to survive. So I'm glad there hasn't been huge amounts of criticism or which which wouldn't be necessary. Well, yeah, because you can still use the free images. Yeah. This is only if you want to have that 10-year support and the live patch and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. And and for people, it probably represents great value for money who people who want that 10 years of support, um, which is pretty phenomenal, I think, really, mm. to, to install a, an OS today and know that in you know, 2030, effectively, it's going to still be updated. I have a, a an Ubuntu server in DigitalOcean that, you know, I, I use as a VPN endpoint and I back up some files to it and, you know, it just ticks away all the time, 24 hours a day. Um, and if I were to replace it with one of these... Um, one of these pro images, let's say a T2 small, so yeah, relatively low power, but but enough to get me by. It would cost me two hundred bucks a year, and I wouldn't have to worry about doing a disk upgrade for ten years. I'm sold. What about you, Phelan? Is this going to tempt you into the cloud? Is it bollocks? <laughs> Is it bollocks indeed? Yes, correct. Uh, and despite getting a Linux Academy account, I will not be selling my soul to AWS slash Google slash God knows what else. <laughs> um, the thing that actually really intrigued me was the the extra patches for the I think is it the top one thousand um, universe packages. I think that's really cool because uh, often with the LTS packages, while you might be able to cover the base OS for up to five years on the server, you were kind of hoping that they would backport patches to various things like Apache and some of the other things that weren't in the main repository. So this is quite good that they've got those included as well. So yeah, no, it's great. And and the live patch thing is really excellent. I mean, people might go on about, oh yeah, uh, you don't need to have a server up all the time. You can flick between live ones, but you don't always have the case with that. It depends on what it's doing and how busy it is. You know, you could be interrupting serious processing jobs that have to be essentially run all the time. So I think it's great. And it comes with FIPS and Common Criteria EAL compliant components as well, um, which means that if you are required by law to have a FIPS compliant machine, then yeah, you just tick the box now. You don't have to go through all of the jump through all of the hoops to to say that you are FIPS compliant. You can just say, yeah, I'm using Ubuntu Pro, which has already been certified. 
tick the box and you're good to go. And that should unlock a, a lot of use cases for especially big US corporates. Well, a quick update on Ubuntu for the Raspberry Pi. Last time we talked about it, I was trying all the different desktop environments and stuff. That was on a 32-bit version because the 64-bit version was basically broken. But they seem to have fixed that bug now. And they've got images for the Pi 2, 3, and 4, including 64 bits for the Pi 3 and 4. So they're taking it very seriously as promised. Yeah, I installed the 64-bit version um, about this time last week, I suppose, maybe a little bit later. I did have a problem on the 4-gig board where USB keyboards weren't working. Yeah. Um, but I think that's like a known issue. Um, and it said on the website, oh, we fixed it. So I SSH'd in and upgraded it. And yeah, lo and behold, it works. So yeah, I have got a 64-bit environment on a Raspberry Pi 4. Uh, and I'm going to start building some ARM packages on there and um, see how it goes. But uh, yeah, my initial uh, my initial reactions are it feels really fast and, and a significant uh, improvement. But you didn't install a GUI on it then. You just run it headless at the moment. Yes, absolutely. GUIs are for losers. Well, it's not meant to be for that, is it? It is for building packages and running server stuff and whatnot. Um, a quick mention for the uh, 2004 LTS pre-release survey, which I don't remember in previous years, but uh, apparently this is not a new thing. This has happened before. You'd know about that, Will. We've asked users before what sort of things they would like to see in the next release, where they think the Ubuntu team should have put the the effort of that cycle. Um and we've had some interesting results. Well, they've had some interesting results, I should say. Um, so, yeah, I'll be interested to see what comes out of this one. I had a quick look at the survey earlier today, um, but I got bored halfway through. So I'll have another go tomorrow. Oh, you can say that now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did the survey and I didn't fill in all of the optional bits, but I did do it to the best of my ability. Um, so people should do that because I always say with these things, if a project puts out a survey and you don't take part in it, then you can't fucking moan when they don't do what you want when the release comes around. They can and will. (laughs) 52%. Is it just for desktop, or is it also covering server? It's very much covering both. All right. So, yeah, you should take part, because you will be almost certainly using 2004, won't you? Oh, well, yeah. Unless it gets bought by Microsoft. (laughs) Fuck that. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, speaking of Ubuntu then, uh, the first ever release of Ubuntu Cinnamon is here. Uh, I'm sure we all rushed out and downloaded it and installed it. No. (laughs) (laughs) The question is, why does this exist when Mint exists? Mint is an Ubuntu base with a Cinnamon desktop. Why do we need an Ubuntu flavor with a Cinnamon desktop? I don't really get it. I mean, you could argue, why do we need one with a Mate desktop? Because there's Linux Mint Mate edition. But that's always been secondary to cinnamon. Remind me, which is cinnamon and which is like, is that the one that's just the old version of GNOME 2 or is that Mate? Because I don't care and I forgot. <laughs> no, Mate is a fork of GNOME 2. Cinnamon was originally, it started as just a bunch of extensions to make GNOME 3 not shit, but then it's massively evolved since then. Excellent. <laughs> But I'll be interested when they actually get a proper website going and show that this project is actually going somewhere because it seems to be just one dude, I think, or maybe a couple. So I I don't know. I mean, choice is always good. And I'd probably, if I was going to use Cinnamon, rather use Ubuntu rather than Linux Mint. I don't know. 
But uh, yeah, if you want to check it out, I will stick a link to it in the show notes. The only download is from SourceForge, which is uh, <laughs> not ideal. Well, another Ubuntu derivative is Zorin OS, and they got into a bit of a pickle recently with telemetry. Uh, you'd know a bit about that, Will, as well, eh? Yeah, and I think we all saw this coming, right? It's yet another poorly executed um, privacy concern, outrage crew, getting all upset about things. I'm amazed, frankly, that Zorin decided to press on in this manner without having a good, long, hard think about what the reaction was going to be on the internet, because I think everybody in the world could have guessed that this was going to happen. Um, but there's a few things in that article that, that we linked to that, that annoy me. Uh, one of them is that the Zorin guy says that, and I quote from the article at least, from our research, it's not clear whether Ubuntu servers store the logs of users' IP addresses when they receive telemetry data. In addition, Zorin OS does not include the popularity contest package that is pre-installed in Ubuntu. Both of those are wrong. We have, they have, Ubuntu has, at length, said we do not store IP addresses. Um, and they also do not ship popularity contests by default. So, uh, sorry, getting on my soapbox there. Don't need to care about that anymore. <laughs> it's great that we've got someone who can be so clear about it, though. So this is Zorin sending anonymous pings back to, to their servers, I guess. Yeah, to count the number of unique users, which is something that all distros would like to do, but yeah. can't do because you get a backlash like this. Well, I downloaded the script and had a look at it because in the header of it, in the comment, it says um, that they don't store, they say they don't store the IP, but in it, they, in the comment at the top, it says that they're going to track the country and city. So they're obviously doing GOIP lookups on the IP address before they don't save it. Um, and, you know, if that thing's pinging every hour, you're going to get a fair idea how. Hmm someone in a particular region. I mean, you could have one person in that region that is using Zarin. So the one person you know in, in that area and they're active between those errors. I mean, it's not like it's pointless data. And they have shown us a screenshot of their DB apparently, but I mean, how many other tables are there? And, you know, what other data is is linked off of that table in a separate column? So, I mean... <laughs> They should ask, I think, for definite, but also I'm not entirely sure it's as clear cut as to what they're actually doing with it. But It's quite strange that a fairly mature Ubuntu derivative like this would do this, make this mistake, because they're pretty serious. They're selling versions of it aimed at enterprise and education and stuff. This is not just some two-bit distro that some fellas knocked together on a Sunday afternoon. But I suppose that's why they want the metrics, because they're serious and they want to make money and stuff. So they want to have a clear idea of how many people are using it. But that's just not how things work in Linux, unfortunately. I think it's a shame. Um, obviously, I would probably be a bit biased here, but I think it's absolutely understandable and acceptable that somebody who is investing significant amounts of effort into a project should know something about the users that they have such that they can better serve those users. And if that means counting, because it might mean they get some investment and therefore the product gets better, then I think they should be allowed to do it. Um, so, you know, people getting upset about this, uh, the reality is they're getting upset about what might be rather than what is. Um, and I don't think that um, that they have any reason to be upset. They just don't use it. It's okay, Will, you're not in Canonical anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what do they do to you, man? <laughs> 
the funny thing is though that that thing that pops up when you install ubuntu even if you say no i don't want to share my details doesn't it ping back saying <laughs> that it was declined so you do get a, a, an idea of how many installs you were. i mean it's different from this with zoin which was doing it regularly to give you the active uh, installations but it's it's not a million miles away from what ubuntu is doing yeah, it's not. And I think having an idea about how many people are installing your product is a useful thing to do. Um, so I don't have a problem with it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and get $50 credit with 30 days to use it. DigitalOcean offer VMs or droplets as they call them with full root access in data centers all around the world with super fast networking and super fast SSDs. You can use distros like Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, CentOS, and FreeBSD, or container distros like CoreOS and Fedora Atomic, or you can upload your own custom image. You can either start with one of those distros, or you can just go for a one-click app like WordPress or Discourse or GitLab, and everything's set up for you out of the box. These droplets start from as little as $5 a month, and they have very straightforward pricing that scales with the resources that you want to use. They also have CPU-optimized droplets and memory-optimized droplets, so you can set up exactly the system that you need. They have great backups, and the cloud firewall feature means that you can block traffic before it even gets to your droplet. You can attach block storage or object storage to your droplet, which is very straightforward. And they even have managed Kubernetes if containers is more your thing. So go to do.co slash LNL and get your $50 credit. That's do.co slash LNL. So Firefox 71 has been released, and there's not a huge number of new features, but it's steady improvement generally. Yeah, and I'm really like the uh, the Lockwise now. I haven't had the chance to use 71 yet because it's not come out the repo, but Lockwise in general is such a huge improvement on their standard password manager, and I like the way it integrates with the monitor, and apparently there's improvements to that, so... I think that's a good thing because it's nice to see the passwords for websites you forgot that you were even signed up to have now risen to the top of your password list and show you that they're now vulnerable and you should change them, which is pretty smart. Yeah, that is a really nice feature. I don't understand what Lockwise is. Is it a service which advises you when one of your passwords has been stolen? Well, that's Firefox Monitor, but Lockwise integrates with that. So in your usernames and password fields uh that's been redone looks an awful lot better and can sort of do um random generated passwords for you and things like that a bit like most password managers would and that it's not quite as good as some of them but it's catching up to it but it does integrate with the um service that uh troy hunt runs the ex microsoft guy mm. so you can then see where your passwords have been involved in various data breaches and stuff like that but otherwise you can just use it to save your passwords and you don't have to necessarily sync that around. You can, like Phelim does, sign into your Firefox account and share it across devices. You've got complete control over like how much you want it. You can just tell it, no, don't remember any passwords or remember them all, tell me which ones have been compromised and sync it across all my devices. So it's, it's pretty pretty nice. Firefox is getting pretty feature rich now, I think. And can you export your passwords and take them to other password managers? I'm not sure about that. I think there are some extensions and stuff that you might be able to export them with, and you can certainly see them in plain text if you go in and, and view it, and you can copy them and whatnot. But I don't know about exporting them into other password managers. I'll have to uh, find out about that. Well, from what you're saying, you probably wouldn't want to use another one. It sounds like it's a good job. Yeah, if you're not a Chrome-using bastard, 
like you, Will, then it's uh, <laughs> pretty good. How's the Mac, by the way? Uh, I used Ubuntu this week to format a USB thumb drive that was playing up, and it was really nice. <laughs> Yeah, you'll come back eventually. Yeah, it won't be long. So Kali Linux has made an incredibly good decision, and that is that they have switched to XFCE by default with their 2019.4 release. What a fucking surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, I wasn't going to not put this in. Have you used it? No. Will you use it? No. Do you give a fuck about it realistically? No. But it's got XFC in it. Fuck (laughs) sake. I downloaded it and installed it, actually, and did some testing of my Wi-Fi, some penetration testing. Well, I'm calling the police, you criminal. (laughs) I was testing my own Wi-Fi network to see uh, if it was going to, you know, give it up to Kali. My uh, both, I've got the 5 gigahertz and the 2.4, and uh, it didn't manage with just the basic tools. So that was good. (laughs) (laughs) so yes in answer to your question i have used it so screw you all right a very quick kde corner then and there's just one and that is contributing to kde is even easier than you could think indeed yes (laughs) they are looking for people to help out with websites to convert them to markdown and if anybody want an excuse to get involved it is a relatively simple way to help out it's not the easiest way there are many other ones too but I just thought if anybody fancies just doing it in their spare time, that would be kind of cool to help out in that way. And, uh, you know, you don't need to be a programmer to do that. You just need to be able to read and to type, and uh, you should be pretty okay there. So uh, if anybody wants to help out, uh, get involved. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. Very much appreciated. Patreon shrank a little bit last month. I think it's growing again. We'll see how that goes. I know things are tight for Christmas. Um, if you want to find out more about that, go to latenightlinux.com slash support. There's links there. And remember that if you support us for $5 or more per month, then you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And you can go to latenightlinux.com slash contact if you want to get in touch with us. And I had a couple of people get in touch about Fostalk Live and whether we should do it for a bit longer. And... Um, I'm still thinking about it. So if you've got thoughts on that, we could start Fostalk Live a little bit earlier than in previous years and maybe do some talks or something like that, as well as the live shows. So yeah, if you've got thoughts about that, then get in touch with us or me or whatever. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. And they are a dedicated Linux computer seller based here in the UK. And they ship their computers with Ubuntu or Ubuntu Mate pre-installed. They have a huge range of laptops, from affordable ones, which are ideal for email and browsing, all the way up to real powerhouses with dedicated graphics and even desktop-class CPUs in them. Almost everything's configurable with the amount of storage and RAM and what CPUs they have. And if you can't find something that's exactly right for you, then do get in contact with them and they'll do you a custom order. They also have a couple of servers and a range of desktops, including a small form factor machine and a really nice all-in-one. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of their machines, then there's a little drop down at checkout. You can select Late Night Linux and they'll know that we sent you to them. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. So last week we talked about Will and his Mac. And I thought, "Mm, what better way to piss off the people who hate proprietary stuff than talk about Chrome OS this (laughs) week? Stop hating freedom. But the reality is this, Chrome OS is the most popular Linux-based desktop operating system. 
probably by an order of magnitude more popular than Ubuntu, which is the most popular proper distro. Is anyone going to argue with that premise? No. Right, good. So based on that, this is the reality of what desktop Linux is in 2019, 2020. And so I don't think that we can ignore it. I felt that I can't ignore it anymore. And so I bought a secondhand Acer Chromebook R11. And I got it for a pretty good price, actually. I think like 120 quid or something. It's pretty low spec. It's not much more powerful than my last Chromebook, which I gave to my mum recently with um, Gallium OS on it. That was a C720 with two gigs of RAM. This has got four gigs of RAM and a Celeron and stuff. But it's also got a touch screen and a hinge that you can fold all the way around to make it into a sort of really clunky tablet, which is pretty cool. Or you can just use it as a laptop. So I don't want to spend too much time talking about the hardware, but it's pretty nice. Um, if you want to play around with a cheap secondhand Chromebook, then I would recommend it. So Chrome OS itself then, um, I don't know, what do you all want to know about it? The, the bottom line is, it's very much like Android, much more so than the old version of Chrome OS that I had on that C720 before they abandoned it. It just feels like Android with a proper browser, really. I, I remember back when it first came out, people were trying to run apps on it and it looked like you had just scaled up an app. So you had like three buttons spread across a massive desktop area. Are things a bit better these days? Yes, they are actually. Um, because you've got the Play Store on it, right? So you can install any Android app pretty much. I don't think I found one that I can't install. And they just integrate in perfectly with the um, the launcher, which is quite like GNOME, I suppose. You've got the kind of full screen affair. And then you just get an Android sort of tablet app where possible, otherwise a phone app. And so that means I can get Slack running so I can talk to people at work and whatnot. And yeah, any Android app I tried was fine. And with it having a touchscreen, it's just like having an Android tablet with a fairly nice keyboard. Would you say that you could work on that thing from, I don't know, let's say you're traveling and you only took that with you. Could you work from it for a week, say? No, because I would need a minimum Audacity, mm. which you can install, and I'll get on to, I suppose, well, let's talk about it. You can install Linux applications on it via a terminal, which gives you a, a Debian sort of VM container thing. It's a combination of LexD and um, KVM. So you can get that going, but then trying to plug a USB interface in just doesn't work. So I could do all my show prep, probably, apart from the practical stuff like trying out distros and stuff, but... I could do a lot of my job from it, and I think a lot of people could do their job from it. If, uh, Well, Phelan, you could easily do your job from this if you could uh, bring yourself to not throw it out the window. So no, then. Because <laughs> <laughs> you could do some light development on it, um, you know, Python and stuff. Right, and I, I presume you can kind of get Termux on it or something like that to get a, a proper shell and SSH maybe or... Well, no, when you enable the Linux apps support on it, which is just going into a menu and just pressing the button, it gives you a proper Linux terminal. Can you access the file system, the containerized file system? Yes, you can. And there's a shared folder as well that you can set up. Um, and so I actually set it up so that it can see my whole home directory 
And so, yeah, you can just do your LSBLK or whatever and see the various directories that are mounted. And yeah, you can copy things around. And you've got just Debian, essentially, in a terminal. And does it have full network access and things like that? Well, not completely. It has network access in that it can go out and download the stuff that it needs. But I tried to install Apache because, fuck it, why not? and couldn't find a way to connect to it. So it probably has access full out, but not back in, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. I couldn't fully work that out. I didn't spend that much time on it because I sort of didn't think that it would work very well, and just it didn't. And I also tried the the Python simple HTTP server as well, um, and that didn't work. So it, it could be a firewall issue. I don't know. I didn't spend enough time digging around in it, to be honest, because... Well, I suppose that it could be useful if you're doing local web development, which I suppose you could do on it. Sorry, Mr. How much local storage is there on there? That is a good question, Graham. And I'm looking now, and I can't easily find it. I think it's either 32 or 64 gigabytes, so not much. No, but I mean, I like Chromebooks. I mean, they do one job and they do it well, but I, f- I can't. I'm old-fashioned and I like, you know, files on something locally as well, you know, especially if you're going to be installing Linux apps on there. Uh, well, you do have a file manager and you can download, I downloaded some videos and stuff and they're just there in the file manager. You can do what you want with them. Yeah, that's good. But I must say that opening the Linux apps for the first time after rebooting is very, very slow. It takes a long time to spin it up. But once it's up and running, it's fairly quick. I suppose comparable performance to the older Chromebook running uh, Gallium OS, which I haven't done. This is supported according to the Gallium OS website, but I didn't want to do that yet. I wanted to kind of experience the Chrome OS situation first. Given you paid around 120 quid for it, and obviously it's an old one, so maybe with a newer one, it's going to be obviously more. But if you were to compare that to the Pinebook Pro, which is probably hardware-wise an equal type of book, obviously it's not got a touchscreen and stuff, which would you rather pick? That's a good question. I think probably the Pinebook Pro, but I don't know. I haven't really played with that enough to know yet. I've had a hands-on with it, but I haven't owned one. So I, I don't know. Um, I think it, it being able to run proper Linux on it is good, but you can, in theory, install Gallium OS on this and have proper Linux. I don't know how good the touchscreen support is and you know the flipping it around and all that. So... It, I don't know I'd, if I can really answer that question, to be honest. Does having the Android Play Store or Google Play Store, is that an advantage, do you find? Definitely on this device. Because Chrome OS was fairly limited until they added that support, yeah, it makes it much, much more usable because I can have everything that I have on my phone and my tablet installed on this. So, yeah, definitely. But what would you get from the Play Store that you wouldn't get from the Linux VM? Well, there's three ways to use software on it. There's web apps in the Chrome browser, or you can install them via the command line in the Debian VM, or you've got Android apps. And so some combination of the three of those mean that you can do quite a lot of stuff with it. Surely with so much choice, you're just paralyzed and you're unable to continue, like if there was too much breakfast cereal. (laughs) Yes, you'd think that. I did, for the lols, install the Firefox ESR, and that works reasonably well. It's quite slow. I mean, that's the the problem with this, is that 
any of the Linux apps are quite slow because they are not running natively. So I think that the, the concept of it is brilliant and the implementation is actually really good, but it just doesn't have the horsepower for it. If this was one of those expensive Chromebooks that has the i7s in them or whatever, I think it'd be fucking brilliant. But I think on these lower end ones, it's just not beefy enough to cope with it, unfortunately. Does Linux run effectively as like an app? Can you can you kind of use the split screen mode to kind of have Chrome on one side and then Linux on the other side? Well, it's it's not like Android insofar as everything is full screen. It's everything is windowed by default. Oh, okay. So you can just drag your windows around, and I, mean, it's, I didn't mention that it's only seven twenty p ish. It's you know, that seven six eight by thirteen whatever. So it's literally a quarter of the size of the screen that I'm used to in terms of physical size and pixels. So that gets a bit frustrating, but it's got fully windowed mode for the Android apps as well. That's good. I mean, the big, the problem that I've, I mean, I bought my mum one, not the same model, but the big problem we had was getting printer drivers to work for her printer, you know, because she's just so used to working in a certain way. And the supposed, supposedly cups is in there and there's cups compatibility built in, but it's still a pain. It's certainly a pain if you don't know what you're doing and even more of a pain now. It's a shame they're shutting down cloud print. <laughs> <laughs> and as you're saying, you can install it through the Android Google Play Store. You can install it through the Chrome Web App Store. And then now you can install drivers through Linux. It, it is confusing. Um, and in the end, the way that we got it to work was, in fact, to install the driver throughout the Android compatibility layer. Oh, right. Well, yeah, I haven't thought about printing, really, because the only thing that will print is my Mac, as I said last time. <laughs> <laughs> so I should try it from this. I've got something I want to print out, actually. Um, in the next couple of days so maybe I'll try it with this and see how I get on yeah it was a bit odd because it was um, her printer's like a what it's a standard printer but it's wireless you know it's connected to it's not like on the it's a bit harder to connect to a Linux machine anyway mm. yeah well as I said USB printing doesn't even work for me most yeah. of the time so yeah but what, what else do you all want to know then about it does F-Droid install well, unfortunately, not by default, because it requires you to enable developer mode to install sideloaded APKs. So I will do that at some point, but um, that requires you to wipe it, I think, to do that. I don't know. I can't remember. It's been a while since I did that. But it's not just in the settings. You have to kind of hold keys as you boot it. And Do you still have to screw that screw out or in or whatever you have to do with it? <laughs> I don't think you have to do that these days. That was some of the very early Chromebooks. It actually sounded really good. That was about the best thing. that. <laughs> <laughs> have you had a chance to try it with any kind of external hardware? I'm thinking like a USB audio interface or something like that with a that will work in the containerized Linux or even in Chrome. Well, I did try that with my interface that I'm talking to you lot through now, and it worked fine for the Chrome and Android apps, but not for the Linux containerized stuff. I did try and dig around in the settings and allow USB access, but it just didn't seem to want to have it. It does say that the Linux support is a beta, so mm. I don't know. What, what's quite nice is that the Linux apps all appear in one folder um, on the launcher. So you've got your list of apps or whatever, and then it just says Linux apps. You click that, and then it opens up to Audacity, Firefox, LibreOffice, 
Um, oh, I tried to install XFCE on it just to see <laughs> if I could make that launch. But you have an illness. I'd, well, yeah. But that in turn installed Thunar, which just launches and works fine. And so you've got Thunar. Um, the, the default file manager does support Samba as well, which is really cool, and other network file shares. So I was able to access my NAS with it, no problem. So it is surprisingly functional. Like we think of Chrome OS as just being, oh, that's just a browser, but that's a very outdated view of it. Yeah, it does sound actually quite, uh, with that, with what you're talking about, it sounds like a much better product. I'm, I'm actually quite interested, especially for the price, for something that you can mess around with. Well, that's what I thought. I'd been wanting to pull the trigger on this for a while. And um, Paddy uh, of Days of Yore, who I actually speak to all the time, people at um, Ogcamp thought that we'd fallen out over Brexit. Um, but no, like, he's my mate, isn't it? I talk to him all the time. We do troll each other about politics a fair bit. But uh, yeah, anyway, um, he bought his daughter one and was singing its praises, saying that she was really happy with it. And so that um, made me want to get one. And then with the, the recent extension in support of these. Oh, because yeah, that's the other thing I didn't mention. When Google extended the support for this, um, like the end of life date, it's now to uh, June 2022, which is going to give me two and a half years with it for like 120 quid. And I thought, well, just to fuck around with it, just to see what it's like. I've been very curious. I'd read a lot about it, but there's nothing quite like having a hands-on with something. What about Netflix, iPlayer, those kind of things? Are they just the same as the Android app? Well, you've got two options to do it, either through the browser or through the Android app. But it can do like offline. I'm thinking here the use case would be it's got a bigger screen than than the tablet I've got, so I could get one, take it on a plane, watch loads of movies with it. Would that be something worth considering, or would a tablet be better in that case? I don't know. I didn't try offline Netflix and iPlayer, to be honest. So um, I would have to try that and report back to you. I did try installing Get iPlayer, but it said no installation candidate. And so I gave up on that. I could probably try that a bit harder. I would normally just install the Snap of it. And unfortunately, Snaps don't work with this. That would be so good if they would work. But you can install SnapD, but then when you go to install a Snap, it tries to install the core one and then fails. So um, I spoke to Poppy about it briefly, and it is a known issue. So that's just not happening for now, which is unfortunate because if you could get Snap working, then you could get Get iPlayer and at least do it that way, which I know is against the terms of service, but what are you going to do? What's the keyboard like? Surprisingly all right. I mean, a shite site better than a MacBook that you've got. <laughs> um, it's not hard. And I, I'm just not the right person to ask about keyboards because I'm the least fussy person in the world. I'll just get used to anything, pretty much. But unfortunately for you, Phelium, it's got an American layout, so you just couldn't use it. Nah, nah, in the bin. <laughs> no. No horizontal return keys. I just, I'm not fussy. Just whatever. As long as it's not terrible, it doesn't miss any keystrokes or anything like that. It's got reasonable travel. And of course, you've got the on-screen keyboard when you're using it in tablet mode as well, which works flawlessly. That, that's another thing, that all those little features that you're just not going to get. If you if you buy a convertible that comes with Windows and install Linux on it, then it's never going to work 100% with the rotation and stuff like disabling the keyboard. You're going to run into bugs like that with Linux generally, whereas this is a really cohesive experience, which you wouldn't expect anything less, really, because Google only has, what, tens of devices to support, maybe a couple of hundred or something. It's not quite like Apple where they have, I don't know, 
a dozen or a few dozen, but it's not like Linux or even Windows where you've got just millions potentially of devices uh, and configurations or whatever. So it is a very well put together experience generally. There's a few little bugs and it's very limited in what you can do. Like for example, I plugged in my external display and that worked, but there was no way to turn off the display on the laptop. So that was just distracting. Um, and it, so it's it's very dumbed down. It's very simplified, but it does generally work really well. So I'll continue to play with this anyway. And when there are updates, I can now actually have a hands-on with them and, and see what happens with the various Linux applications and trying to get different distros running and stuff. So probably return to this at some point. But time is getting the better of us, so we'd better get out of here. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with our end of year roundup if we are not too depressed by the result of the election. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll be looking back at the news from the end. Quite a lot's gone on. I've been trying to collate it. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. Mm-hmm.